0: Well, as Matt said, we're continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, and we have come to the second half of chapter 2, which if you missed last week, might leave you wondering about the first half of chapter 2, because, I mean, if you think about it, it seems like both halves must be complementary. They're both in the same chapter, and they are, and here's how they're related. In the first half of chapter 2, Paul comes to me, and he comes to you, and he says, look, I want to talk to you. I want to show you how amazing Jesus is by showing you the difference that his life lived for you. That his sufferings suffered for you, that his death in which everything that holds you back from God and everything that stands between the two of you has died, that his burial in which all of that with him was buried for you and his resurrection from the dead has made on your vertical relationship with God. And he uses kind of a form of argumentation that's sort of like a it once was but it now is deal to sort of show this and see how Jesus is amazing. Like again and again in the first half, he's coming to us and going, you once were like this in regard to your relationship with God, but now, look at Christ, you're like this. Back in the day it was, today it is. Back then, once upon a time, before you knew him, okay, it was like this, but, but Jesus is so incredible. Jesus is so beautiful. Jesus is so powerful. What he's done is so amazing that you're now like this. And the differences are stunning. He's like, look, guys, it's the difference between death and life. It's the difference between wrath and mercy. It's the difference between the eternal judgment of God, which nobody wants, and the eternal kindness of God, which everybody wants. It's the difference between all of your efforts to try to repair this, this bridge, this, this space between you and God on your own for yourself, which is impossible. You can't unite heaven and earth. And The one who came from heaven to earth to unite you to God at the expense of his own life. He's like, look, it's the difference between you're going to live your life and you're going to try to construct some meaning for it and you're going to co- try to construct some purpose for it and you're hopefully going to, you know, think that you're significant. But in the end, it's not going to matter. And why is it not going to matter? Because I don't know, 20 years after you're gone, 30 years after you're gone, 100 years after you're gone, can we think that far out? Nobody knows who you are. Just made a difference. No, no, no difference. And I have the privilege of of taking my little life, whatever days the Lord gives me, and for his glory and folding them into a mission and into a purpose that lasts forever and actually makes a difference. And for forever makes a difference. Like the differences are big. That's the first half of chapter 2. In the second half, he says, all right, look, same Jesus. But now let's look horizontally. What he wants to talk to us about today is the power of Christ who's united us to God to unite us together. And he uses the same idea, the same argumentation. He's going, yes, it used to be, but now look at Jesus. Okay, and now because of Jesus, it's this. It once was, it now is. It once upon a time, but today it is radically different, and the differences are huge. The idea of chapter 2 is, look, just like Jesus unites us to God. Jesus unites us to each other. And by each other, I mean like anybody who comes to faith in Jesus, even people you don't like. Can we just say that? I mean, you know, people who have hurt you. They might come to faith in Jesus. Maybe they already have. People who have abused you. Now we're getting personal. People who don't look like you, they don't vote like you, they don't think like you. They, I mean, they could not be more diametrically opposed to you. Like you would never, ever choose to hang out with this person, to spend time with this person or with these people, whatever the case might be. They are different in every possible way from you and nevertheless. He's calling us to look at a Christ who is powerful enough to bring us together as one. Unity is is the demand. That's a big word, isn't it? Unity is the demand of the gospel. Unity is a manifestation of the power of the gospel. Unity, when we embrace it, is the gift of the gospel. And more than that, if you believe Jesus who comes and says, hey, do you know how the whole world is going to know that you're my disciples and that somehow we're different? I'm going to call together a group of people. We're going to call it the church, and it's going to be from every different strata of people. Like, I mean, every different kind of person on the planet. And you're all going to love each other. And everybody's going to see it. That's the apologetic of the Bible. That's like how the world is going to know. Since the beginning of time, people have been looking for a unifying principle, something that can take all of the different diverse people and all of the different diverse cultures and all of the different diverse societies and all of the different economic strata and educational strata, all of the differences, and somehow bring us together as one. Jesus is like, look, it's not a principle, it's a person. The person is me, and my mission is to proclaim that through my people as they love each other, notwithstanding all the differences. So, what that does is that brings us to the question of the day, which, as Matt said, is look, is there anyone anywhere that you believe that not even Jesus can unite you with? Because Paul has taken us up on that one. He's going to lay down the challenge for us in that regard. He wants us to think differently. He wants you to know that God has the power to bring anyone to him, anyone, and that when he does, he doesn't just show up as an acquaintance. (laughs) Even as a friend, he shows up as family as your brother and sister in Jesus. So we pick up our study today in Ephesians 2, picking it up in verse 11, where Paul, who is a Jewish Christian, and I want you to focus first on the word Jewish, okay, is writing to Gentile Christians, and now I want you to focus on the word Gentile because there was a massive, like 2,000-year-old division between those two groups of people. But now they're Christians. And that difference is really what he's going to talk about. We're all part of one family now, and he's saying, okay, now let's learn to live that way. He says this, he says, therefore remember, which is a key word, please don't forget it, you'll hear it twice, remember that at one time you, what, Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, which was a term that was derisively applied to anyone who was not Jewish by everybody who was in that day. You were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which Paul says is a circumcision that's made in the flesh by hand. So here's what I want to try to do. I want to try to explain to you just how deep the divide was between these two different people groups. You have Jewish people over here, and then you have the Gentiles, and they are, not even in the room. They're like at the Sawgrass Mall. I mean, Sarasota, like west coast of the United States. I mean, we're talking big, huge divide. And the Jewish people in the first century in Paul's day lived in a world that was run by the Gentiles, who, by the way, ran the world and lived in a world in such a way as to offend every possible sensibility of a Jewish person. And by the way, the Jewish people, for their part, lived in all of the major Roman cities in the world. I mean, when you read through the book of Acts, and you look, for example, at the missionary journeys of Paul, and he goes from city to city to city, to city to city, to city, to city to city, to city all over the Roman Empire, where does he go first? In every city to the synagogue. Why? Because there is one. There's a worshiping community of Jewish people in every one of these cities with their own synagogues and so forth, and they existed in the centers of these cities in such a way, not intentionally, but nevertheless to offend pretty much all of the Gentile sensibilities. As you begin to look at the differences, you can begin to see, even if it wasn't intended, and I'm sure that it was not, how sort of resentments could build, how tensions could build. I mean, you know, just for example, the Gentiles worshipped a whole multitude of gods. The Jews worshipped one god and then labeled the Gentiles as idolaters and pagans, which incidentally was a true statement, but probably didn't feel very good if you were one of them. You thought, what are you you talking about? What What are you calling me? How not to win friends and influence people? But... That was nevertheless the case. The Jewish people were very restrictive in their diet, so they wouldn't eat anything that was unclean according to the law of Moses. Well, you know, the Gentile people, I mean, they ate everything, meaning they ate unclean things, and they were labeled as unclean people. So a strictly observant Jewish person, and I admire the observance, don't hear criticism in that, based on that observance wouldn't go into the home of a Gentile, wouldn't sit in a chair that a Gentile had sat in, wouldn't touch anything that they've touched, lest they themselves become unclean. So, you know, I mean, let's say you're a Gentile and you're looking at your Jewish neighbor and he's out there slaving away in the yard, you know, and he's working hard and he's sweating it out because it's hot there just like it's hot here. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to take the first step relationally. So I'm going to make this guy a cup of water and I'm going to bring the cup of water over to him and you enter onto his property and you start to come near him with the water. He's not excited to see you. He's not taking your water. Why? Because you touched it. I mean, talk about cooties, you know, like, and and again, I, I admire the adherence. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, but I'm just saying as a result of these differences, you can see how very naturally resentments would build and divisions would be created. I mean, the Jews were a sexually chaste people. Okay. The Gentiles were absolutely anything but like could not have been farther away on the spectrum. You just look at the city of Ephesus, for example, we could do the same thing with Corinth, but in the city of Ephesus, the patron goddess of the city was Artemis. Artemis was the god of fertility. I want you to try to imagine how the god of fertility was worshipped and don't imagine it too graphically. Okay. Like don't spend a lot of time there. It's an outrage to the Jews. Crazy. At Corinth, you have Aphrodite. They had a thousand temple prostitutes working around the clock in the center of Corinth at the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Outrage. Crazy from their perspective. And the Gentiles were offended by their being offended. And not just because they felt like, well, these people are moralistic and judgmental and maybe condescending even toward us. But because, for example, in Ephesus, the temple to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, I mean, people came from all over the world to see this temple, okay? They loved the temple. It was a matter of great civic pride. And so now these people are not just judgmental and condescending and moralistic, but they're not even good citizens. You can see how these narratives began to build, how these people groups began to divide. The Jews were a people who valued life and children. The Gentiles were not. If you were poor in the Roman Empire and you couldn't work and sustain yourself, they just let you die. No, 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 don't feed him good grief. He's a drain on society. He has nothing left to contribute. His life is over. He's done. Wow. If you had a baby in the Roman Empire and there was any defect at all, or even if the kid was just weak, they would just put you outside and let you die of exposure. They would do this with perfectly healthy children, mostly with girls, because they were girls. In the city of Rome itself, the male-to-female ratio, for every 131 males, you had only 100 girls. That is not a small discrepancy. And so from the perspective of the Jewish people... They looked at the Gentile people and they wanted to keep their families and kids away from them. Like, you know, we don't want that kind of craziness to invade our ethic because they looked at them and they went, all right, let's just go down the list. You're, you're idolaters. You're unclean. You're murderous. You're immoral. I mean, good grief. What else is there? And from the perspective of the Gentiles who felt judged, I'm sure... They're like, man, you you know, you're moralistic, you're judgmental, like you totally don't get us, you don't like us, you don't like our city, you don't affirm our deities, our way of life, like you don't even fit as a citizen even, like very divided. And yet what Paul is doing to them, he's doing to us. I mean, you've got to answer that question I said and figure out who the group is or who the person is and just apply it because he's coming and he's going, hey, listen, I'm a Jewish... But now, Christian, which means I'm not over here anymore. I'm here. And I'm writing to you guys, and you're Gentiles, but not just Gentiles. You're Gentile Christians, which means you're not on the West Coast. You're, you're here too. Jewish is not my identity, Christian is. Gentile is not your identity, Christian is. We're all in the same house. And now... We need, by the power of Christ, to learn how to live as one. So he calls it out, he puts it on the table, and then he uses that word remember. Again, he says, remember that at one time, so back in the day before you came to faith in Jesus, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is to say by the Jewish people, and it's a circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Okay, he says, remember what? That back in the day, and I'm just going to tell you as a Jew what you were, you were unclean, you were idolatrous, you were immoral, you were murderous, lecherous wretches. Like, he calls out all of their behavior, no, he doesn't even mention their behavior. He speaks in terms of proximity, distance. It's beautiful, really. He says, I want you to remember that, okay, at that time, back in the day, you were what? Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world, but now, because of Jesus... Okay, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, which incidentally is the same blood that brought the Jewish Christians into the family of God as well. One of the things that we've been doing in this study of Ephesians is we've sort of repurposed just for this study the podcast that Sam Caston-Smith does. And Sam is one of our pastors. He's just incredibly brilliant, guys. And he does it with Mark Lautenschlager, uh, who's one of our elders, who is also brilliant. And so these guys have a great rapport. It's fun to listen to. It's on our app. I'd recommend it. But one of the things they're doing is, in addition to personal worship and in addition to what we're talking about on Sunday mornings, is they release a podcast every Thursday about the book of Ephesians and about the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at on Sundays. And it's been Great. I mean, it's color commentary on everything that I'm saying and then some. It's wonderful. But I love one of the illustrations that Sam used. He said, I want you to imagine a house, okay? And it's a big house and inside the house, there's a roaring fire and there's food and there's drink and there's people and there's life in the house. It's safe in the house. It's the place to be. But outside the house, it's 20 degrees, negative 20 degrees, 20 below everywhere outside of the house. If you can't get in the house, what difference does it make if you're 20 feet from the door or 20 miles? You're still 20 degrees below zero, isn't it? You're going to face the same fate. You're going to freeze. Jesus comes and he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes through the door into the household of God except through faith in me. It's like he's not trying to hide something from us. He wants us to know something. He's going, I'm unique. There's just me. He literally calls himself the door in the Gospel of John. And it's a door open to anyone who will come. But the idea here is that the Jewish people who were, okay, 20 feet from the door, let's say, came through into the door by the same blood of Jesus that the Gentile people who were 20 miles from the door came into the house through as well. In other words, all of the moralizing of the Jews was not enough to get them into the household of God, just like all of the immoralizing of the Gentiles was not enough to keep them out of the household of God, which is really wonderful because at various times in our lives, we place ourselves in one or both categories, don't we? Like, I mean, you know, there's some of us here today and we feel pretty good about ourselves. And I mean, you know, we might not want to trumpet that out loud, but I mean, hey, like I'm pretty awesome. Obviously, I'm in the family of God. Are you as awesome as God, who is transcendently holy? Because if not, then you need the blood of Jesus. You might be 20 feet away, but there are things in that 20 feet that need to be covered by His blood. When you receive the blood by faith, the door is open and through you go. Or we go through seasons of time in our lives where we look back at all of our failures and we think, oh, good grief, I got no shot. (laughs) And there is no way God's wanting me in that house. Well, why not? The same blood that covers 20 feet covers 20 miles, 200 miles, 200,000 miles. It's infinitely valuable. It stretches whatever the distance is, and it claims you as his own, and it brings you into the house you get the idea but here's the deal whether you're 20 feet or 20 miles away when you get in the house everyone in there is your new family even if there are things that are offensive you know after we got married we moved to chicago and lived there for know, maybe three years something like that wonderful city it was awesome it was in fact 20 below at times there and even colder which was not awesome uh, and so we're back. But, um, but we went to the Moody Church and the pastor there is Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He is still there. He has been the pastor there for 40 40- years years this year, which is remarkable and amazing. And he's a really wonderful, kind man. Uh, He's a very good preacher and teacher and expositor of the Bible. And I'm sure that there were several things in all the sermons that I heard that were formative of me. I'm embarrassed to say that there's exactly one thing that I actually remember specifically, uh, which really is discouraging to me because, you know, like I'm about 20 years into this, but... But it was this one illustration, and it had to do with the way that we look at our sin versus the sin of other people. It's powerful. He said, you know, we all tend to look at our sin kind of like we look at the Moody Church. You know, we walk outside, we stand on the sidewalk, we look up at the Moody Church. It's about three stories high. I mean, it's a pretty big pile. But then we tend, so that we might feel better about ourselves, to look at the sin of other people like we would look at the Willis Tower. I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago. It used to be called the Sears Tower. Okay, instead of three stories high, it's 110 stories high. It was the tallest building in the world in the early 70s when it was built. It is still, to this day, the third tallest building in the Western Hemisphere, highest observation deck in the North America. Pretty amazing. So when we look at our sin, it's moody church height, right? You you tilt your head up, you can see the roof. When we look at the Willis Tower... It's like this. And the difference is stunning. But then Dr. Lutzer says, all right, but look at those two buildings from the moon. How big of a difference do you discern now? He said, look, God is so above us in terms of his perfections. God is so above us in terms of his holiness. God so transcends us in terms of his righteousness. My goodness, when he looks at all of us, it's like looking at the Sears Tower versus the Moody Church from the moon. We're the only ones focusing on the difference. And we both need the same blood. We both need to enter through the same door. And remembering and being humbled by that allows the moralistic and the immoralistic to come together as one. It breaks down walls. It makes us more compassionate, more loving, more willing to listen for understanding as opposed to listening so that we can formulate our next argument and shoot the other person down. Paul says, as he himself, this is verse 14... Jesus is our peace, who has made us both what? One. And has broken down in his flesh, which is what it took, the dividing wall of hostility. How? Well, in their case, with the Jews of that day and the Gentiles of that day, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, by abolishing this holiness code which says if you eat this, if you go here, if you touch this, if you hang out with these people, if you sit in this chair, if this was what happens, now you're unclean. Why? Because how are we made clean on this side of the cross? We are made clean through faith in the blood of Jesus shed for us. Which means, by the way, that these Christian Jewish people could suddenly, and I mean, I'm sure they must have wanted to do this on some level because it would at least smell good, go over to their Gentile friends' houses and have a pork sandwich, which is like remarkable experience, man. I know it's not good for your cholesterol, but that's why we have cholesterol medication. So praise Jesus for the time period that we live in. Guys, Jesus lived and suffered and died and was buried and rose again from the dead so that he might create, just keep going, in himself one new man, a brand new kind of person, a new nation, a new people, his church made up of every kind of person. Beautiful for our diversity. One because of him, so that he might make a new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility between us and him and us and us. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, 20 miles, and peace to you who were near, 20 feet, For you both needed the same message. And for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the one father. Then he concludes by saying, so then, the idea being, if you have faith in Jesus, no matter what you've done... You are no longer strangers and aliens way, way, way over there, but you're here. You're in the house. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household. He changes the analogy now to a house, the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together as one is the idea grows up into a holy temple. And a temple in the Bible is a place where God and man meet. It's where we dwell together, grown up into a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So part one of chapter two, first half, guys, Jesus is so amazing that he has bridged the gap between heaven and earth, God and man for you. Second half, guys, Jesus is so amazing that he has bridged the gap between you and people that otherwise you might not like or who maybe have hurt you or taken advantage of you or just diametrically opposed to everything that you're in favor of. You're on one street corner, they're on the other. Get the idea? But in Jesus, You're in one house. And for the glory of Christ, we need to learn to live that way. So I'll ask you again, is there anyone anywhere that you believe that not even Jesus has the power to make you one with? Because if there is, then the cure is found not in remembering things about them. The cure is found in remembering something about you, which is where you were 20 feet, 20 miles. It's all 20 below. Doesn't matter which is where you were when Jesus found you and swung wide the doors of faith so that you might come in and be one with him and one with them. So as we enter into a time of reflection before we come to the table this morning, I guess I'd like to comment on the table itself and say it's one table. There's a unity that's even implied in the sacrament and the sacred thing of coming and, and taking up the elements of the body and blood of Jesus, the price paid that we might be one with God and one with each other. And so if you're not in unity with somebody who shares your faith in Jesus and you have not done what you can on your part, as Paul says, to make peace with that person, and I realize that's not so simple and there are complications and there needs to be a wisdom involved in all of that in some cases, I understand, then I would encourage you not to come to the table today, but instead do that. And come the next time we offer it. If you don't yet believe in Jesus, you're just, you know, taking it in, I'd encourage you to go to Alpha. But I would encourage you not to come to the table today either. And the the reason for that is just has to do with authenticity. It's just about, look, we take up these elements if... In our hearts, we've taken up these elements. Does that make sense? It's like if I really am trusting in the body and blood of Jesus, then I can take up these physical elements that I get to chew and eat and swallow and take into my stomach, if you will, um, these things that represent the body and blood of Jesus. But consider Jesus. Talk to us about Jesus. Talk to our prayer team, which sort of gathers some people in the back and along the walls, and take advantage of that and pray with them. But otherwise, I just want to lead you through a time of prayer before we come to the table. And, and I want to give you space and the time to just talk to the Lord yourself. You know, I mean, the Spirit speaks and He speaks to you. And He might talk to you about something I haven't even mentioned. And that's great. Go with that. But I'll give some prompts, okay, as we go through. And then after that, we'll come to the table together.